turn also to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> we are at the uh, seventh message to the churches of Asia, to Laodicea. So we're at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Revelation 3, 14 to 22. This also is God's holy word. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. <clears throat> I know your works. You are neither cold <clears throat> nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> May we go to our God and ask for his blessings in the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> Our merciful Father, we thank you for you indeed are good, that you are worthy of our praise. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness that there is no error, that there is no falsehood in him, that he judges perfectly, that he judges with righteousness, with no partiality. And Father, when he judges us, that all his judgments are right and true. Father, we confess to you how quickly we go astray, even in attempting to obey your commandments outwardly, that inwardly our motives are flawed, our motives are less than pure. Father, we pray in thanks that you give us so freely the gospel of your Son that we have in you, true forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you, Father, for the reminders from your word that we need often. And we thank you, Father, that you, as our loving Father, that you are the one who loves and that you discipline those you love, that you reprove, that you call to repentance. May we be zealous for you always. We thank you, Father, for your provision for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. May he be exalted even this day. And may your servant be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> How much of your day do you think and spend time thinking and planning about these three subjects of wealth, fashion, and health? Perhaps some of these for you are one of them or two of them are not so important. But you think about wealth, that uh, how much of our day is spent working, and God has commanded that he who does not work shall not eat, that we ought to be diligent in our work even as God is diligent in his, setting his example for us, that we are called to be diligent, and that's important. But how quickly in our work do we uh, start to lose sight of of wealth, that we start to uh, think, well, I, I go to work and I put food on the table. What need is there to pray for our daily bread? And God is left out of the equation. You see how we, we're commanded to work, but we see how there's easy pitfalls when we start to think mechanistically about how things happen. Let me think about fashion, how important uh, fashion is. So, so then is it the case, uh, you're going to say to me, is it case, Frank, that uh, for us to be holy, it means that I need to be wearing clothes from the 80s? Well, I'm not saying that at all. But uh, are we chasing the latest fashion because we want to be hip and, and readily received and accepted by the world? 
And how, when does that end? Does it end with fashion? Does it end with values? Does it end with morals? What about health? That uh, as people get older or more mature, it's not unusual for ailments to increase. And we realize that someday, someday, we will give up and life will part from us. We have no control over that. God is the one who determines the number of our days. When you think about these three subjects, it seems like it occupies our time, our minds, our hearts. In many ways, you look back at this, the city of Laodicea, that they were known for wealth, for fashion, and for health, as we'll see. And is it the case that they lost sight of the Lord Jesus, even in the midst of their pursuit of these three things? In the pursuit of these three things, have you also lost sight of the Lord Jesus? This book of Revelation, it contains, toward the beginning, chapters 2 and 3, seven letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Asia. We acknowledge that these were not seven private letters, that these letters weren't written, like these isolated letters weren't sent to these individual churches, but that Revelation was a full letter, and the, the letter was sent to all seven of those churches. That there are many great themes in Revelation. That uh, there's a lot of imagery and we ought not to be distracted by them. We ought to see the bigger picture. The bigger picture that in Jesus, he indeed is victorious and he will return for his people. That we ought not to lose sight of who he is. That we ought not to be tempted to become like the world and give in to the culture of this world. And so we see in this passage, the message to the church in Laodicea, Christ is disgusted by spiritual pride often fueled by worldly wealth, for which he urgently commands humility and repentance. Christ is disgusted by spiritual pride, often fueled by worldly wealth, for which he urgently commands humility and repentance. We'll look at this in three points. The first, Christ rebukes. Second, Christ restores. And third, Christ rewards. So the first point, Christ rebukes, in verses 14 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here we're reminded at the start of these letters. <clears throat> that it is Jesus Christ, the Lord of this church, who speaks. And regarding Christ's description of himself, was it in Isaiah 65 that, that God is referred to as the Amen? And even here we see the words of the Amen, that Jesus often spoke in the Gospels, whether it be tr translated truly, truly, or verily, verily. The bottom line is Jesus is the Amen. We think about, we even use the term Amen. It means that there is a hearty support. There is a hearty uh, uh, affirmation of something that is said. This is what happens when we pray, that we say an Amen. May, may it be so. May it be done. May we ask it of the Lord together, that Jesus is the true and the faithful one. It's a reminder to us that he is the faithful and true witness, even as the apostle Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. So when we think about, well, who's right, who's wrong, who's truthful, who's honest, who's false, we like to think of ourselves positively, that we like to give ourselves a positive spin, that we tend to make ourselves look better than we are. This is where the fashion comes in, right? So... So then, uh, hey, you, you have certain stripes, certain colors, uh, certain patterns. Well, they can hide that, that bulge that you have uh, in the front or in the back, wherever. Right? The bulges that aren't supposed to be there, well, fashion hides those things. 
And, and so in the same way, we, we see ourselves. Or maybe in your own house, you have a, I went to a, a friend's house, and they, uh, they have a slimming mirror. Because I, I walked over and said, hey, wait a minute. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm that thin. And I compared it to the mirror in the bathroom. Hey, this mirror is actually a slimming mirror. Is there something crooked about that? And, and so we see, is it the case that it affects the way we view ourselves? We're reminded, God is true, and everyone, every man is a liar. We look at this description of Christ regarding himself. We look at the letters. This is the only letter where the description of Christ in the beginning of it doesn't come from John's Patmos vision. It actually comes from the introduction to, to Revelation. We see also about the dire situation for the church in Laodicea. The seven letters follow a general pattern. There's some type of commendation, or there's, there's an introduction about Jesus, who he is, his characteristics. There's some kind of commendation. There's some kind of a rebuke. There's a call to repentance. And there's a promise or a challenge uh, for those who are faithful. Uh, there were some exceptions. When you look at Smyrna, you look at Philadelphia, to the church, the letters to those churches, there, there wasn't really a rebuke. There wasn't a call to repentance. In their situation, it was almost uniformly positive. Uh, obviously, with Smyrna, there was a great persecution going on. Here, we have the opposite extreme. With Laodicea, what we find is no commendation. There's no praise given to this church. And you think about how sad this is. That our Lord Jesus, even with some of the other churches, there was at least a remnant within the church that was worthy of praise. And we often are biased. We're often biased in that when things become difficult, then we focus on the negatives. And, and one of the tests for that is when, when there's a, a relationship gone sour, whether it be a friendship or a marriage, you ask uh, one, hey, is there anything thankful you're thankful for regarding this relationship? Anything thankful to God that you have? And they would say, there's nothing positive. So, okay. So then, then what we're seeing is that you, your view has been entirely skewed. Our Lord Jesus, though, He's not subject to that bias. So when he says there's no commendation, there's no praise, this is something serious, quite serious. <clears throat> we ought to understand that you look at the situation. History tells us that certain rulers in Laodicea, they had brought Jews, wealthy Jews, to this city. Many of them. Yet, we find there's no mention about conflict with them. This is not a, a positive thing that we, we would seek conflict with others. But you look at some of the other letters, two of them, where they talk, Jesus talks about a synagogue of Satan, that the Jews, that they were causing trouble, making trouble for the Christians. And we wonder, well, historically we knew that there was a significant Jewish population in Laodicea. But there was no opposition from the Jewish synagogue. What does this tell us? This is often what, what uh, my, my professors who, who coached us to preach, the homiletics class. One of the marks was, hey, could a Jew sit in the church and hear you preach and not be offended by it? Because if they're, if they're not offended, it means that you haven't preached the gospel sufficiently. You haven't preached the, the, uh, the searching matters of the law that shows us our faults and points us to our need of Christ. Apparently, this wasn't front and center for the church in Laodicea. Look at this first rebuke, verses 15 and 16. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There were three cities that were close together. Colossae, to which we have the letter of Colossians. Hierapolis, 
and Laodicea. These were three cities that were close to each other. Colossae was known to have cold water sources. Hierapolis was known for their therapeutic hot springs. So Colossae had cold water. Hierapolis had hot water. And Laodicea, they had no, no uh, constant water source. Maybe they had some creeks that dried up. So they were very wealthy, very wealthy. They had a, some kind of a pipeline built uh, from Hierapolis, several miles away, to Laodicea to supply them with water. And the hot water from Hierapolis arrived in Laodicea. And by that time, after traveling several miles, uh, the water was no longer hot. It was lukewarm. So this is where, this is where Jesus is describing this lukewarm. It, it's dealt with specifically regarding the city, Laodicea. Think also for a moment about how lukewarm is not a normal mode for our food and beverage. I remember uh, a friend who was involved in catering had said, you have to keep the hot things hot and the cold things cold. Meaning the hot things, you have to have a flame under them. Especially you, you, you go and cater a party, the hot things have to stay hot. And then if you have cold things like salads and desserts or, or whatever, uh, dairy products, you have to have them on ice because cold things have to stay cold. And there's this magic number of four hours. So when the hot, hot things cool down, become lukewarm. The cold things warm up, they become lukewarm. And if you eat something and it's lukewarm, the thought is hot things stay hot, cold things stay cold. If they're lukewarm, it means it's sat around. And these are often the things that can make you sick if you've They've sat around for several hours. Here we think about this lukewarmness. <clears throat> Is it the case that this lukewarmness was uh, a description about the complacency of the church in Laodicea? That uh, was it that they just weren't excited, that they weren't fervent to the Lord Jesus Christ for the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice that the sentiment of Christ wasn't anger or wrath. What is the sentiment then, this lukewarmness? It was actually disgust. If you eat something that's lukewarm, you spit it out. Just as he had said, I will spit you out of my mouth. This lukewarmness, not having a fervency for the Lord, that's really just a symptom. But what is the real problem? It goes deeper than that. We think about this sentiment first about disgust. I remember reading about a woman, a secular marriage counselor. It's not to say that we endorse all the things that secular marriage counselors teach. I'm only using this as an illustration. She had said that uh, Meeting people who were about to get married or meeting people who were married but were having marital problems, her claim was, I only need to meet the couple. And listening to them was somewhat important, but she said, I only need to see them interact with each other. See the eyes. I see the facial expressions. I see the body gestures. And she says, if I detect disgust between them, she says, that's almost a sure sign that that marriage will fail. It won't last. When you think about the situation then with Jesus, the husband, if there is this disgust, there's something serious about this relationship. So I mentioned that this lukewarmness, it goes deeper than just complacency. We see that in the second rebuke. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. What's at the heart of that? You see that the old, uh, the book of Revelation has all kinds of Old Testament references. Uh, many of them are not specific, meaning that they're allusions. They're it's not, not direct quotes necessarily. And this is one of them. It comes from Hosea 12, verse 8. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. 
Here, the lukewarmness is not the result of complacency per se, but it's the underlying spiritual pride that comes up. God warned his people Israel regarding temptations that come with wealth and success and worldly favor. We see that mentioned in Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 19. It's a long passage. I won't read all of it. But God warns them, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and the terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you. To do you good in the end, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. We read earlier in our larger catechism, question 193, the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. And there's a mention there that we are prone to desire, get, and use them, uh, meaning what we earn, the daily bread, use them unlawfully. Meaning that as we work, which we're commanded to do, we're, we're, we're told to be diligent, we're told to be trustworthy stewards, we're told to be industrious. But what happens as we spend so much time of our day working and laboring, are there heart issues that come up? That there is a, a willingness or a tendency to say, you know what, I've acquired all these things for myself. That we buy into these systems that we profit from these systems. The statement, I, I am in need of nothing, there in verse 17. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. This is a litmus test for us, is it not? If ever we're thinking, hey, I'm fine. God, I don't need anything. Some of you might be wondering, well, wait a minute. Is this actually uh, someone expressing contentment? Well, not in the context. For someone to say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. It's not a question about contentment. This is not a contentment issue here. This is a complacency. It's a spiritual pride issue. The church in Laodicea was saying, hey, I'm rich materially. But in reality, they were spiritually poor. In fact, they were spiritually bankrupt. There were no... There was no praise. There was no commendation for them. One of the reasons why God commands in the Lord's Prayer that we pray for our daily bread is because we need the regular reminder that the things that we have all come from God. It's a regular reminder that God needs our daily needs. It's our physical needs, our material needs, how much more so our spiritual needs. That if ever, ever you or I are asked the question, what do you need from God? And if we're thinking, we're, we're, we're feeling this, oh, I just don't need anything, then spiritually, that's the litmus test that says we are absolutely in a bad place. If... If we think about this from the perspective of a deist, you, know, you think about some people claim that the, the, the founding fathers, many of them were deists. The description is that, well, God is like this watchmaker. He, he, winds, he makes this watch, he winds it up, and then he lets it go by itself. A as if this world, as, as if human life could continue for a, a femtosecond if God were to say, you know what? Creation, I'm just going to let it go. No such thing. Everything falls apart. Everything implodes. Nothing lasts for a moment. If God says, you know what? I'm taking a break and I'm, I'm stepping out. Is it the truth spiritually that how many of us would apostatize if the work of the Holy Spirit decided to take a break? The answer is 
every single professing Christian would apostatize in a heartbeat. It's a reminder to us, this fourth, command, uh, this fourth petition. It's a reminder to you and to me, our daily needs that God supplies. Consider these series of rebukes that Jesus gives. After I need nothing, to not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, you ever see those slapstick, uh, slapstick uh, old, old shows? You know, like Three Stooges or uh, Laurel and Hardy. You know, some something like that, where you know you have someone who who does the the forward slap and the backward slap. It is as if these five words: wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's like a a you know five-fold slap. But is it true? For each one of us, it must not be to us an insult. We think about Laodicea, that they were a major banking center. There was all kinds of money that was exchanged, that they were known to be very wealthy. There were in there was in the history of Laodicea. Uh, a number of earthquakes, and being uh, overseen by Rome, there were occasions when these earthquakes came, things were leveled. Rome offered, hey, we can offer you tax breaks, we can offer you finance to help. One occasion, they took it, they received it. The second occasion, with an earthquake, Laodicea actually said, we refuse. We got plenty of money, we'll cover it all ourselves. In fact, the, the word was, not only did they help themselves, they, co they covered their own rebuilding, they went to the neighboring cities and they gave them money to help them rebuild. Yeah. Talk about loving your neighbor. They, they were, hey, was this, was this a good thing? Well, outwardly it was. But really, for them, it was fueling their pride. That the last thing that they would want to be known as is poor. They were exceedingly wealthy. There was, with Smyrna and Laodicea, they were mirror opposites. Smyrna, Jesus had acknowledged that materially they were poor, but yet in the letter Jesus says, but you are rich. There was great spiritual wealth. You are being persecuted, you've lost your jobs, you're barely putting food on the table, but he says, don't forget you are spiritually wealthy. Laodicea was the mirror opposite. Outwardly, they had great wealth. They were rolling in the money, so to say. But Jesus was coming to them saying, you're not only spiritually poor, you're spiritually bankrupt. Laodicea also, they had a school of ophthalmology. They, he, Jesus mentions this thing about the salve for the eyes. It turned out that in Laodicea, uh, they were known uh, to have some kind of special cure for eye ailments. So you think about it, they had a special medicine, <clears throat> concoction that probably was secret, or you know, they, they, they knew what ingredients to put in there, and people would put this eye salve on such that it would fix and cure eye issues, eye, eye ailments. But yet Jesus says to them that they are blind. That they are blind. Remember in John chapter 9, around that time, Jesus heals this blind man. And at the end, the Pharisees, the end of that chapter, Pharisees asked Jesus, are we blind too? And there was something specific. Jesus says to them that because they claim to have sight, their sin remains on them. Meaning that there's not this ignorance. Part of blindness is that we're blind to our own spiritual state. We're blind to, to what it is that we actually are. The tendency for worldly wealth is that, hey, people in the world respect me. They invite me into their circles. I have great money, and I'm doing well. I see all this outward blessing. God, this is from you. And, and then to equate that and say, hey, God, you know what? 
This is a sign, a, a sure sign of your favor. Right? When you look at the, the wealthiest people in this world, are, are they faithful Christians or are they atheists? Why is God giving the atheists so much outward wealth? There's no sure sign of blessing. It's easy for us to think, hey, we're doing okay. Everything's good. My, my net worth is going up. My income keeps going up. I keep on getting promoted. And my health is stellar. Certainly, God, everything's fine, right? Here we think about how we're blind to our own spiritual condition. We think somehow being received by the world means being received by God. Blind to our spiritual shortcomings, perhaps even blind to the temptations, not only that we face, but actually that we've succumbed to. Here, Jesus is the one who identifies this blindness of ours. Laodicea was also known to have some type of a black wool that was very expensive, highly sought after. It was a very dark, like a jet black. And yet Jesus had said to them that they were naked. That they were naked. And then you combine that with the two terms before, wretched and pitiable. Well, who wants to be wretched? Who, who, who acknowledges their wretchedness? Well, the Apostle Paul acknowledged his wretchedness. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Are you one who is reminded that outside of Christ, we have to acknowledge, outside of Christ, do we have any merits? Do we have any claims? Can we boast in anything? And we need to be back to that situation where we're realizing, God, outside of your work, outside of your mighty power, we, we have no merits of our own. We cannot claim any boast at all. How do you respond when one confronts you with this five-fold slap, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? What merits do you possess? It's common for us to think that material and physical traits equate to spiritual ones. Yet for God, he sees clearly that they don't. Are you and I able to accept such a rebuke? especially one that comes from our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> so this is the first point Christ rebukes. We have the second point Christ restores in verses 18 to 20. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Here in verse 18, Jesus gives his counsel. Rather than shame them, revile them, lord himself over them, Jesus provides for the church in Laodicea a genuine solution. That solution is himself. And he instructs them. Buy from me, he says. Christ possesses true riches, not of this world. Rust will destroy. Thieves will come in and steal. But he says, buy from me. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Jesus freely offers to them white garments. This is his robe of righteousness. He sees that they in Laodicea lack this righteousness. And yet he freely offers it to us. Can you and I be clean? The answer is only by the perfect work of Jesus Christ can we be washed clean. Believe upon Jesus. Trust in his free offer of the gospel. This is how you and I can be cleansed. How we are clean before the righteous God is that we're clothed with the very righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to us, nothing in my hand do I bring. Simply to the cross do we cling. 
Jesus gives true sight to the blind. He gives us the spiritual eyes to see. Regarding Christ's counsel, are you open to hearing his counsel? Are you open to receiving it? We're reminded in God's word, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Christ also extends his love there in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. This here is a very helpful principle, a divine reminder of God's ways that are above man's ways. It's a reminder that we need often. Perhaps some have come from abusive homes where people tear each other down with hurtful and hateful words. You realize, coming into Christ's kingdom, we must understand principles that he uses. We think about how uh, people tear one another, each other down with words. Well, you ask, what, are the, what is the goal? If the purpose of the words, Christ's words, are for warning and saving from great danger, this is very different from the motive of words being used to harm and to destroy. Think about James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What was happening there One brother was speaking to another brother and saying, you are in danger. You are on this, you you, you think you're, you're coasting, going flat, but you're actually on this downhill slope. And Jesus says that those words used will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here, for the church in Laodicea, Christ's intention was to warn them in order that they might be saved, to restore to spiritual health, whether or not they're actually saved and backsliding, or whether or not they were unconverted. We don't know. It doesn't matter. What, what matters is they weren't walking with the Lord in humility. We think about the ways of this world. Think about how outside of the work of the Holy Spirit, this is who we might be, a fragile person only surrounds himself and befriends those who are nice, who speak well of them, make them feel good about themselves. This is a warning to you and to me. We cannot be such people. We must be around those who are willing to sharpen us. You think about those who, uh, quote-unquote, get ahead in life, those, those who become the leaders. I hear about stories of the boardroom, <clears throat> the CEOs who chew out people, Uh, Those who are uh, lower and middle management, they get chewed out so much that men, grown men faint, pass out. And and we think about, hey, I hear some of these stories, and you know, my my manager said, but those are still positive. So really, yes, those are positive because the CEO is saying, hey, he still cares about the person. He still thinks he's capable of changing. And he says, it's terrible when the CEO, you, you hear someone say something or do something wrong, there's no criticism anymore, he's just, That's a sign that that person is done. He's on his way out. We think about our Lord Jesus. Is he willing to let his people continue down the path in sin, in hard-heartedness? This is not what Jesus would want for us. We think about how our feelings and our self-image, these are of prime importance, are they not? Well... What should be of prime importance is your holiness, your obedience. This is what should be primarily important to you and to me because that's what's important to our God. Christ loves his people, and so he says he will reprove them and discipline them for your good, for my good. Hebrews 12 indicates this very principle about God's discipline, his rod and his staff. They should be a comfort to you and to me. They're a reminder that we're not illegitimate children. You ask yourself, well, what does this look like? What does this feel like? Well, I'll be straight with you. It means that we often should get humble to the dust. And 
Perhaps some of you are saying, well, then I have no boast. Well, we shouldn't. Not in ourselves. Well, well, then I feel bad about myself. Well, if you're, if you're feeling good as a matter of being able to boast about something about yourself, then this is saying, hey, there's obviously change needed for you and for me. This is what the church is, a community that sharpens one another. The evidence that you and I have, have and are receiving Christ's love is that you and I are able to accept his reproof and his discipline, that we're zealous for Christ and that we repent. Even as we see at times, we become uh, independent, so to say. We think that we're autonomous of God. Verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Oftentimes, we see this uh, Revelation 3.20 quoted, right, regarding evangelism. Well, I don't need to, I can't go into all the details. Uh, we can say at least from the tip of the iceberg perspective, this is, this is uh, valid to describe uh, evangelism. There's all kinds of uh, other things that go along with it. But for the church in Laodicea, he's speaking to professing believers. And the glaring fact that we ought to notice when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. The glaring fact is that Jesus is outside the house and the door is closed to him. Do you understand that? That if Jesus is knocking on the door, he's saying, let me in. Should this be true for you or for me? That we have Jesus outside. No, you wait outside. I'll open the door when I need you. When I have a need, then, then I'll find you. And until then, I'll keep you outside my house. I don't want you to see what I'm doing. There's rooms that I have here that uh, there's things there I don't want you to, to witness. Is that the case? In spiritual pride, that when it rules our hearts, Jesus is only needed to bless, uh, never to correct or to discipline. That we only bring Jesus and his word in as a trump card to justify our convictions and our opinions. But Jesus must not be outside. He must not be outside that thick wooden or steel door. He must be inside the home. This is where he ought to be. That he ought not to knock. He ought to be with us. He ought to be close to us. We ought to desire his extended presence. That fish and guests stink after three days. Well, we should never have Jesus with the thought that he stinks. That we should desire that he would be in our home. There's no part of our home. There's no part of our lives that should be closed off to him. And so here... Jesus is one who restores. The third point, Christ rewards in verses 21 and 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here Jesus gives the one who conquers the privilege of sitting with him on his throne. Now, children, perhaps you're wondering, wow, wait a minute, how big, how big is this throne that Jesus allows us all to sit on his throne? Well, well, we don't need to be concerned so much about that. The bottom line, what Jesus is saying is that you who are trusting in him will reign with him, that you will rule with him eternally. Have you ever wondered when someone becomes a Christian, there's a need to give up something in order to acquire something else. For those who are outside of Christ, do you realize that they will have their own community of, lo of love and acceptance? That they will have their own treasures? They will have their own rewards? That Jesus here is making that promise that one would say, I'm going to walk away with everything good that I think I have. I'm going to walk away from the temporal, the trinkets of the world in order that I might embrace the eternal riches in Christ. 
So when Jesus is the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That there's actually a throne that he promises to his people. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The very description of reigning with him. In 1 Corinthians 6, the description about Christians. That in Corinth they had disputes. And they were between these believers. And they were going to the secular courts to have mediation. And Jesus says, hey, do you realize that you as a Christian, that you will judge angels? That you will judge the world? How much more matters of this life? Christ promises these eternal wards, even to the church in Laodicea, which had no con- commendation. Do, do you realize what this is telling us here? There was no praise, nothing praiseworthy to this church in Laodicea. But yet Jesus, in his promise, he is saying that they repent and they overcome, that they, they conquer. And Jesus is the one who conquers. He's saying, you will have a throne. You, you realize how exceedingly generous, how gracious our Lord Jesus is. That, that he's saying to this church in Laodicea, repent of your ways. But he's saying, all of you who overcome, there is a throne awaiting you. And so also it's a reminder to you and to me that our Lord Jesus is exceedingly generous with us. When we think, hey, what about Smyrna? What about Philadelphia? I mean, shouldn't they be far better off than Laodicea? Well, you know what? The Lord sorts all that out. It's not a basis of merit. But you realize God is one who freely offers to sinners that we might repent, that we might follow him. We trust that he is the one who is just and righteous. We trust that it's only in Christ's perfect work that we have anything at all. Here, we ask ourselves regarding this overwhelming grace that our Lord gives us. How often is it that you, often do I, extend this grace to others? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This phrase is found in every seven, all seven of the messages to the churches in Asia. That a reminder, God's people are given ears to hear and eyes to see. And the evidence that we have the ears to hear is that we listen to Christ's word. It means that we heed his warnings, that we answer his call to repentance, that we obey his commands, and that you and I believe his promises. We consider some of the things that we can walk away with even as we think about Christ's message to the church in Laodicea that this rebuke to the church in Laodicea it seems so appropriate to the current American church lukewarm complacent smug self-satisfied self-assured self-sufficient that when we have any problems we just learn to throw huge wads of money at it but we realize that in the church, the problem is rarely ever money. Christ's response of disgust to the church in Laodicea 2,000 years ago is that also fitting for you and for me in Christ's church today. Rather than becoming defensive or start shifting blame, <clears throat> are you and I ready to heed Christ's warnings? <clears throat> Where and how are you spiritually? What is the basis even of your spiritual self-assessment? Is your material and financial success a sure sign of God's favor and approval? Are we able to reduce a spiritual assessment to quantifiable things, such as how many chapters of your Bible you read, uh, how many minutes or hours you spend in prayer, or how many people you've served? You realize that all of those things are not proofs of anything. Can we, can we quantify those things? The answer is we cannot. The true tests of spiritual pride 
What is your response to the Lord Jesus when he calls sinners wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked? Are you able to admit that all five of these true are true for you? Well, left to yourself outside of God's saving work. Will you follow him when he counsels you to buy from him true gold that is refined in the fire? That you must put on the white garments that he provides to cover your nakedness. That he is the one who alone opens the eyes of the blind. That is the true test of what not there is spiritual pride. Is that we have this sober reminder <clears throat> of who Christ is. Uh, what he has done on behalf of sinners. And what our response to him should be. That is, that is the test of spiritual pride. Are we able to acknowledge this is God and this is man? He is far up there and we are far down here. But we think also about the things that occupy our time and our efforts, wealth, fashion, health. Is that really our preoccupation? Should it be? Are we thinking only in the material and the physical realm? Or are you and I able to see the things that are of eternal value, the spiritual things? Do not lose sight of what you and I are called to do. We have secular occupations. Realize we must not be lost in that work. We must continue on and realize that the Lord calls us to be diligent. But our values... And our spiritual worth cannot be assigned to those things. Our Lord Jesus is the one who describes our relationship with him. And we must see that of prime importance. Let we go to our God together in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you.